Okay, we'll get started. Thank you for joining us today for this webinar. My name is Carl Hausker. I'm a senior fellow at the Climate Program here at the World Resources Institute. We're very happy to be hosting this webinar uh, on the topic of Xcel Energy's carbon reduction goals. As many of you know, Xcel Energy is aiming to cut emissions by 80% below 2005 levels by 2030 and to be 100% carbon-free generation, electricity generation by 2050. Uh, so we have with us today senior members of Xcel Energy's Energy and Environmental Policy team. Uh, and they're going to talk about their goals, uh, what drove Xcel Energy to set these goals, and uh, the next steps they'll be taking. Today we have with us Jeff Ling, Director of Energy and Environmental Policy, Nick Martin, Manager of Environmental Policy, Julia Eagles, Public Policy and Strategy Manager, and Lauren Wilson, Environmental Policy Manager. Uh, they'll be walking through the agenda that uh, we, we posted here and uh, walking through their slide deck. Uh, I'd also like to note that Excel Energy is a member of WRI's Clean Power Council, two-year collaboration comprised of leading US electric utilities and major commercial customers, jointly committed to the rapid deployment of low carbon energy supply through innovative and mutually beneficial utility sector solutions. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the Council, you can find it on our website, or you can contact Heidi Bishop, WRI's Manager of Electricity Markets. Uh, so before I hand it over to uh, the Xcel Energy team, uh, a few housekeeping notes. Uh, first, uh, you'll be able to type in questions uh, to ask of our uh, webinar presenters. Uh, we will be holding those questions until the end of the presentation, and then I'll be uh, re reading those. Uh, and also, we're recording this webinar, so if for any reason you have to jump off, uh, it will be posted later. So with that intro, uh, Jeff, let me turn it over to you. Great. Thank you, Carl, and thank you to the entire WRI staff. We really appreciate you're hosting this webinar. We appreciate the opportunity to talk about our carbon goal, and we look forward to your questions. So I'm just gonna take a few minutes and introduce the company, introduce our carbon goal, and talk to you about some of the key factors that led to it and some of the work that's ongoing. I'll introduce my team members who will talk more in depth about it. Next slide, please. XL Energy is a dual fuel utility. We serve eight states, 3.6 million electric customers, and 2 million gas customers in parts of the upper Midwest, Colorado, New Mexico, and the Texas Panhandle. Next slide. We have three strategic company priorities, and they are leading the clean energy transition, enhancing the customer experience, and keeping bills low. And specific to the clean energy transition, we've been the largest provider of wind energy in the US for over a decade. That's made possible in a big part by our steel for fuel strategy. We currently have approval to build 12 new wind farms in seven states, some 3,800 megawatts. Next slide, please, Carl. And that steel for fuel strategy is a big part of our ability to deliver carbon reductions. So we've reduced our CO2 emissions 38% from 2005 levels at the, as of the end of last year. And that's really significant as you think about a 38% reduction relative, relative to, for example, the Paris Climate Accord. The nationally determined contributions under the Paris Climate Accord were 26 to 28%. It's significant if you think about the previous EPA's clean power plan as well. Those reductions would have required 32% by 2030. So we are better than today with our current emissions reductions, better than the clean power plan, and also uh, achieving greater reductions in the Paris Climate Accord. I'll also point out here that the electric power industry as a whole had reduced CO2 emissions 27% by the end of last year. In December, we made a new announcement, and Carl mentioned it. We made a new amount announcement to increase our carbon reduction strategy. It previously was a 60% by 2030 goal. 
we increase that to an 80% reduction by 2030 and an aspiration of delivering carbon-free electricity by 2050. This is a bold goal. We think it's the right goal, and we are actively implementing it, as you will hear from my colleagues throughout the webinar. The response has been overwhelmingly positive. I'll point out that this is not a resource plan, though. It is a long-term strategy that our chairman and CEO, Ben Folk, has established for the company. There are really are a number of factors that led to this announcement. I want to talk about three of them. First, we knew it was important to ground our carbon goal in the climate science. And Nick Martin, Nick Martin will talk about the work that we've done with the University of Denver in this regard. Many of you are no doubt aware of the trio of recent climate reports, the IPCC one and a half degree report, the National Climate Assessment, and the UN Environment Program Emissions Gap Report. We really knew that whatever carbon reduction goal we set, it had to be grounded in the climate science, and we think we've done that. Second, our communities and our customers are increasingly demanding that we deliver cleaner energy and lower carbon emissions. And Julia Eagles will talk about the many communities across our service territory who have set robust clean energy and carbon reduction goals. Many of them are 100% clean energy or zero carbon goals. So Julia will talk about what we're doing to partner with those communities and enabling them and empowering them to achieve their goals. Finally, Lauren Wilson will talk about some of the key drivers for this goal and the need for new technology. We see several clear pathways with current technology to the 80% by 2030 target. Actually, just last week, we announced a preferred plan in our Upper Midwest IRP, Integrated Resource Plan, using largely current technology to get to an 80% reduction by 2030. But for that last 20%, to go further, we know that we'll need some new form of 24-7, zero-carbon technologies that don't exist today. So this goal was as much a part of sending a clear signal that for the last 20% of the carbon on our system, we'll need some new technologies that are not currently available. So I'll turn it over to my team to go into those three areas, beginning with Nick Martin. Well, thanks a lot, Jeff. Um, I'm going to take the next, uh, and you can advance, uh, Carl, just to the transition slide here. I'm going to set up this section a little bit before we go on. I'm going to take the next 10 minutes to talk on uh, just on a high level and maybe keep it on the transition slide for a second, Carl. I don't want folks to get working on interpreting those figures. I'll talk about them when we get there. Um, sure. Just want to talk about how we relate our carbon vision to the latest science, specifically to the two degree and 1.5 degree uh, global temperature goals in the Paris Agreement. Um, Jeff talked about the trio of climate reports. Those uh, all came out last fall in pretty quick succession. Uh, IPCC one and a half degree report, the US government's national climate assessment and the UNEP emission gap report. They all came out around the same time and they really focused folks attention on uh, both on potential climate, climate damages and risks, everything from globally to regionally and then specifically for the electric sector. And then also on the kind of level of greenhouse gas reductions needed to avoid the worst damages. So those really caught our attention too. Um, the reports are, are voluminous, and, and, uh, but, but one of the things they indicated pretty clearly is that global emissions have to peak fairly soon, decline by 40 or 50% by 2030, and reach net zero by around mid-century uh, in order to, uh, to achieve those temperature goals. But the question is, what does that mean for individual sectors, like the electric sector, or for individual companies like Xcel Energy? Uh, we are, uh, like many other companies, we're increasingly asked by investors, environmental groups, and others um, if our own company ca carbon goals are aligned with two degrees or one and a half degrees. Turns out that's a pretty complicated question to answer. There's some guidance out there, but it tends to be fairly general. Uh, and rely on kind of one-size-fits-all targets. 
that don't work for all companies. So to try to answer those questions, we, we entered into a, a fairly intensive kind of year-long uh, learning process leading up for our goal announcement to try to get smarter on the sort of uh, climate scenario analysis questions. So I'm going to talk about two, two components of our learning, and you can advance to the next slide, Carl. The first one, the Electric Power Research Institute is the nonprofit independent research arm of the electric power industry. And last year, EPRI began a project with a number of different utilities to try to start building a stronger scientific foundation for climate scenario analysis and company goal setting. What EPRI did is uh, they dug into the IPCC fifth assessment report database of over a thousand emission scenarios and did independent analysis of uh, global, regional, and electric sector greenhouse gas scenarios that are consistent with uh, various probabilities of limiting warming to two degrees Celsius to try to identify kind of key variables, key uncertainties, and robust insights, meaning insights that are robust across scenarios that could help in company decision making. Um, I recommend uh, EPRI's full report, which is available and is, is shown on the slide here called Grounding Decisions, and I won't try to summarize all of it, but I wanna just mention a few key insights from that report that informed the work we did uh, going forward. First of all, as, as shown in that little cartoon on the bottom of this slide, you can see that there's really a lot of steps between a global temperature goal and an individual company greenhouse gas target. First of all, there's a range of global greenhouse gas uh, emission scenarios consistent with a temperature goal. Then there's national decisions, nationally determined contributions, for example, under the Paris Climate, Paris Climate Agreement, uh, subnational pathways, uh, pathways for individual sectors, and then finally companies within sectors. So there's a lot of steps there. Um, modeling global greenhouse gas emissions to 2100 or even beyond uh, inherently involves a lot of assumptions and uncertainties. Each one of those thousand scenarios that EPRI looked at has built in assumptions about population growth, economic growth, technological change, global coordination or lack of coordination, and what form carbon policy might take. So those are all kind of embedded within the scenarios. Rather than thinking of a single scenario that could somehow align with two degrees Celsius for all companies, like you should reduce 90% by 2050, it's more helpful to think of a range of global emissions, a range of scenarios, that is, that are consistent with a desired probability of achieving a temperature goal. So the chart you see on the page here shows from that data, emission scenario database around 400 global greenhouse gas scenarios that are consistent with a 40% or greater chance of uh, limiting warming to two degrees Celsius. The finer the resolution, so as you move from global to national to particular economic sectors to companies, the greater the uncertainty in what emission scenario might be consistent with a temperature goal. And finally, this is also a key insight, and you can kind of see it on the chart. Um, scenarios that increase emissions in the near term tend to rely on large negative emissions uh, sort of mid-century and beyond in order to achieve uh, a, a temperature goal. So you can see that, for example, some of the what's in the shaded area on the chart are all the scenarios that are consistent with that probability of two degrees Celsius, but some of them are highlighted. You can see, for example, the curving gray line that in increases emissions for a while and then has to go way below zero later on in order to achieve uh, the goal, compare that to the yellow dotted line that reduces right away and never really goes into the negative territory. So that's an interesting insight, and I'll talk more about that uh, in a second, but it, it's sort of, um, it, it's important because we can't be sure those negative uh, emissions technologies are gonna be available at the scale they would be needed. So that was uh, some, uh, some learning we did with EPRI. Uh, it really set us a strong foundation, but it didn't really provide us everything we needed to do company-specific uh, comparison of our goal to the science. So, uh, and you can advance to the next slide. Um, the next step we took is we uh, worked with um, climate modelers at the University of Denver, the Pardee Center for International Futures, 
uh, Dr. Brian O'Neill there is a lead author on the IPCC's uh, sixth assessment report. He was also an author on the uh, uh, fourth national climate assessment. So he was tremendously helpful, helpful to us in, in, in just helping us understand uh, what, what's out there and how we could compare ourselves to it. The timing for our analysis was excellent because IPCC had just released a new emission scenario database along with their 1.5 degree report uh, that had a whole bunch of new emission scenarios Dr. O'Neill could work with. So we set three constraints on his work. Uh, we, we said, first of all, let's focus on the scenarios with a high probability of achieving the temperature goals. So from about 400 or so emission scenarios, he extracted those that are assessed by the IPCC as, have, as being likely, meaning 66% or greater chance to limit warming to two degrees, and more likely than not, meaning 50% or greater chance to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. Secondly, we had to decide what to compare XL Energy to. We decided to compare ourselves to uh, the, the electric sector carbon emissions in industrialized countries within those scenarios. So the scenarios that had already been chosen as passing a certain probability test, we looked at the electric sector. We thought it made most sense to compare ourselves to our own sector in countries with a similar level of economic development as the United States. And then the third constraint was we decided to exclude any scenarios with net negative emissions within the electric sector. This is a more conservative approach uh, because we're not sure that negative emission technologies will be available or societally uh, acceptable. So we decided to focus on those scenarios that would require greater reductions uh, sooner because they don't have negative emissions later and compare ourselves to those. So the results of that analysis, and you can see on the chart, um, applying those three sets of constraints left in the chart on the left, about, and they're a little hard to see, these, the light gray lines are 17 IPCC scenarios that, are, that have a 66% chance of limiting warming to two degrees without negative emissions. And then on the right-hand chart, five scenarios that can limit warming to one and a half degrees Celsius that illustrates that it's considerably harder to do that without negative emissions. And then superimposed on those, you see XL Energy's uh, carbon reductions to date and a projection for the future. So what this shows is that Excel's 2030 and 2050 goals represent reductions that are larger than those that occur in the electric sector in industrialized countries in most of the scenarios that are likely to limit warming to two degrees. You can see on the left that our trajectory is below almost all of the lines. And secondly, uh, within the range of reductions that occur, Excel's uh, carbon trajectory is within the range of reductions that occur in the more limited number of scenarios that achieve the 1.5 degree target. You can see that on the right. Uh, Dr. O'Neill did various sensitivities to kind of stress test that conclusion by looking at other scenarios in the database, just making sure that that conclusion doesn't rely on unreasonably large reductions in other sectors or regions. Uh, and he was comfortable it did, didn't. Um, it, there's a full report from the university available on our, on our website. So um, just to, to conclude my section, I, I, just a couple of things. Um, I wanna emphasize uh, you know, specific resource plans will determine exactly what that carbon trajectory is going into the future. But we're confident it's gonna look fairly similar to what you see here. Uh, we, we're confident we can get to 80% by 2030 affordably and reliably. So that makes us feel confident that, that we'll be well aligned with the electric sector reductions needed for two degrees and even 1.5 degrees. I will say removing that last 20% of carbon will, get, will be increasingly challenging and depend on technologies that are not yet available at scale. And Lauren's gonna talk more about that. Um, and the other thing I wanted to emphasize, you know, these temperature goals uh, are really, they depend on economy-wide reductions. So strategic electrification in some other sectors, thinking especially of transportation, using low or zero carbon electricity, may help get the economy-wide uh, economy reductions needed for those temperature goals. And at some, at some set point, it could make more sense to remove the next ton from transportation or another sector rather than electricity. 
Finally, we think climate policy needs to be designed to keep electricity affordable, uh, particularly in view of that, that possibility of significant uh, electrification in other sectors. So I'll hand it off there to, to Julia. Great, thanks, Nick. So next slide here. Um, so I'm gonna speak a little bit to uh, the theme, one of the themes that Jeff mentioned at the outset here, which is that many of our stakeholders, including our communities, our customers, legislators and regulators are calling for a cleaner and greener product overall from Xcel Energy. So our strategy here for our carbon vision is both influenced by this interest and we think it can really help this growing number of stakeholders to reach their individual, individual goals. And specifically, we're seeing more and more of our cities, communities, and companies embracing commitments to 100% renewable energy. So as their local energy companies, we wanna engage with these parties to credibly demonstrate our support for clean energy, which includes carbon reduction and renewables, but also illustrate some of the challenges and trade-offs of moving to a 100% renewable energy system overall. So you can move to the next slide. So illustrating this trend, um, we've been tracking across the eight states that we serve, the cities and counties that have set carbon reduction and or renewable energy goals. So you can see that across our states, we have 16 cities that have set carbon reduction goals, seven of which are carbon neutral goals, and there are another 16 cities that have set some type of renewable energy goal, and more than half of those, 11 total, are 100% renewable energy goals. And as you can see, a number of those communities have set both. So next slide. So to help these customers meet their goals, we have been making clean energy investments and transitioning our energy mix over the past decade uh, and beyond. So we've had and will continue to add significant amounts of renewable energy to our system to achieve that interim goal of 80% reduction by 2030 and, and that long-term vision as well. So as you can see here, We've already increased the renewables on our system from 9% in 2005 to 25% as of the end of 2018, and have achieved an energy mix that is 38% carbon-free for our customers. By 2030, we estimate that our system will be 60% renewable and 70% carbon-free based on proposed scenarios that align with our carbon reduction vision, and those are pending regulatory approval, but that these are our estimates. Next slide. But we know that some of our customers will want to go above and beyond our current and planned system renewable percentages to meet their goals. So we have a range of products that allow customers to do that. So I'm not going to describe each of these in detail, but you can see we have a variety of offerings from green tariff options like Renewable Connect and WindSource, uh, which is one of the oldest green tariff programs in the country to incentive programs for customer sited renewable and renewable installations like solar rewards and different models of community solar gardens, so both Solar Connect and Solar Rewards communities that allow customers to subscribe to a utility-owned or third-party-owned solar garden. So these products are not free um, because we have to continue to maintain the current grid uh, that customers still use to provide reliability and prevent cost shifting to non-participants, um, but we do offer these, um, some of them as, as premium product offerings to our customers that want to get to those goals, like I said, faster. Um, and as customers are getting more sophisticated in their accounting on progress toward these goals, we're opening the conversation about how the renewable energy certificates are allocated for each of these options. And you can see here, we talk about the REC attribution for each of these products. Um, so next slide. And we've also been working to kind of redefine and evolve our relationship with key local government and large corporate customers on these carbon and renewable energy goals, as well as broader uh, energy and economic development goals through a variety of partnership models that we have in some of our states so far. So each of these programs provide different opportunities to partner with communities and stakeholders to identify and prioritize their energy needs and then provide tools and resources to develop a plan and support putting that plan into action. So the first I'll talk about here is Partners in Energy, which is a program we launched in 2014 for communities in Minnesota and Colorado that were looking for resources to take their energy planning to the next level. So XL Energy works in, partner, in partnership with these communities over a two-year period to develop an energy action plan to do an inventory of that community's baseline energy consumption, to provide information on available energy efficiency and conservation programs and current participation levels within those communities, as well as providing tracking and reporting for participating communities to measure progress toward that energy action plan. 
So, so far we've worked with 37 communities through Partners in Energy in Minnesota and Colorado. The next one in the middle, <clears throat> excuse me, is a coalition called the Minnesota Sustainable Growth Coalition that uh, is, includes about 30 companies and organizations with headquarters in Minnesota that are jointly committed to action on energy, water, and waste sustainability. So the members of the Sustainable Growth Coalition have been interested in engaging on helping to design new renewable choice products to meet their needs and participate in regulatory processes to support faster increase in carbon-free electricity and faster decline in CO2 intensity. So recently, the coalition adopted a new clean energy vision that prioritizes economy-wide greenhouse gas reductions while fueling economic growth and increasing access to affordable, reliable, and clean energy to improve racial, economic, social, and public health outcomes. So that's been a great opportunity for us to work with some of those larger companies in our Minnesota service territory. And the last one I'll speak to here is a new approach that we launched in Colorado called Energy Future Collaborations. So this one really looks to unite the energy goals of our communities with the company's services and expertise to, a share, to achieve shared objectives. So a similar model, really working in partnership on shared goals. Um, they're aimed to address a wide range of priorities, so including renewable energy targets and reducing the, uh, the carbon footprint of a city, also maximizing participation in our energy efficiency programs, other economic development efforts. Um, so right now we've signed up eight communities for the collaboration so far in Colorado that represent about 32% of the retail load in our service territory there and have a nice nice representation across the diverse municipalities there. So both rural and urban communities, some of the mountain range areas there as well. Um, and we think this is a collaboration model that can be replicated with other cities and towns throughout Colorado and potentially in other states. So broadly, uh, we really think that helping our customers and communities achieve their renewable energy goals starts with our own system and advancing that clean energy transition reliably and affordably. Um, and our initiatives from product offerings to partnerships provide a model for how we can go above and beyond our system transition to work with large customers to help define and achieve their specific energy goals, including renewable energy ambitions. Next slide. <clears throat> so, Lastly, we do know that this system, this energy system transition has pretty significant direct impacts on our host plant communities, and we're really actively engaged in leading this transition conversation um, in our states. So I'm going to speak uh, specifically to our work in Becker, Minnesota, as an example, but it's, we're doing similar work in Colorado as well. So as a part of our last approved Upper Midwest Resource Plan, we committed to closing the two oldest units of the Sherco Coal Generating Facility in Becker by 2026, and to build a replacement natural gas plant to provide a portion of the capacity and maintain the reliability of our system in that region. So, excuse me, we've worked with the city of Becker and Sherburne County to support economic development in their community, including reaching an agreement in 2017 to support the relocation of a metal recycling program and facility that was originally in North Minneapolis uh, to move that to the city of Becker and that will bring at least 85 new jobs to the area. More recently, we filed a plan with regulators and also received approval earlier this month to provide renewable energy to a proposed Google data center to be located on Excel's property adjacent to our Sherco generating plant. So th through this proposal, the Google Data Center would be fully powered with wind energy through a service agreement with Excel Energy. And we recently issued an RFP to acquire the wind for that. The project will also add tax base and generate jobs for the community affected by the planned retirement of the, of the Sherco units. And if the project goes forward, the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development estimates the project will result in nearly 2,000 construction jobs 50 full-time jobs and general economic growth of almost 150 million. So again, we hope this is another model we can continue to build on to really listen to the community needs and wants in this transition and give them a, as long a runway as possible for economic development and workforce pre uh, preparation. Next slide. So our carbon goal is among the most aggressive in the industry in terms of both the timing and carbon reductions, but many of our utility peers are also setting ambitious goals to reduce carbon emissions. This is just a sample of the 34 Edison Electric Institute member utilities who have set carbon reduction goals. We believe our industry has great opportunity for leadership in this area, both in reducing carbon emissions from our own generation, and then as Nick spoke to uh, a bit earlier, that potentially the opportunity to support carbon reduction in other industries as well. 
So I'm gonna turn it over here uh, to Lauren to talk about the drivers for achieving our vision. Great, thanks, Julia. Gonna round out the show here with a little bit of a focus on how we achieve success in this in our vision. Um, you can go to the next slide, please. Um, so as you've heard, we've we've established these really aggressive goals, we've grounded them in the climate science, and we really align them with our customers. And now we really have to build on that hard work um, in order to implement to achieve these both our 2030 goal and our 2050 aspiration. Next slide, please. We see four main drivers that really need to come together in order for us to be successful and also for us to be successful in the shared goal of cost-effective emissions reductions. You know, first and foremost, we have to talk about affordability and reliability. These are really the table stakes of our, our business and also fundamental customer requirements. And meeting um, in reliability and affordability really means that everyone and all of our customers can participate in, in this transition that we're making. We would definitely want to work collaboratively with our states and stakeholders because um, we think this is really a shared goal towards carbon reductions. Of course, on our team as the energy and environmental policy team, we think a lot about constructive public policy and what that means. Um, very complex topic, but just to highlight a few things, you know, we're out here trying to lead this carbon transition and clean energy transition, and we can't become a smaller company in that process. Um, so we will be looking for various opportunities for um, to compete to own resources and other avenues to support our business. You know, another thing to highlight is just on this technology piece, we're looking for policies that are technology neutral, so um, that are not overly prescriptive on any particular technology, but can really keep the options open um, as we move forward and keep all the tools on the table because we're going to need them. And lastly, technology. I mean, you heard Jeff mention that technology was really one of the factors and why we set the goal, but it's also one of the keys to success. We believe we can get to our 80% target with current technologies, which will involve you know, significant expansion of wind and solar and other renewable energies. Uh, but to get that last 20%, we really see the need for new technology, and that's going to be the game changer to get us to that 100% carbon-free aspiration. So on the next slide, we can dive in a little bit into what we're talking about with technologies. You've heard a few times throughout the webinar, dispatchable carbon-free technology, and that's really um, what we're looking for. I've listed some examples here. Um, Things like geothermal, power to gas, advanced nuclear, and, and other ideas, frankly, that maybe we don't even know exist today. And I want to reiterate that these really are just examples. Ultimately, we're interested in a combination of technologies, and whatever combination delivers the greatest carbon reductions at the lowest cost for customers. So all technologies are really on the table for us today. One thing all of these have in common is that they're not all commercially viable today at scale. They all are on kind of different parts of the trajectory towards that. And so one reason we set the goal is also to also, also call for strong R&D and re, um, research and development and deployment starting now. You know, 2050 to me sounds so far away. Uh, I think my daughter will be 30 by then. Um, but it's in terms of an R&D timeline, it's really quite short. Um, getting from early stage development all the way to commer commercialization takes quite a bit of a runway. And so we're really hoping to work with our stakeholders and policymakers to, to create that, that environment where these technologies can compete and become successful. Next slide, please. So we also want to think a little bit about how these technologies will play and balance with the rest of the portfolio. Um, what I just described is really this red piece of the pie chart, the flexible base resources that are zero carbon dispatchable that can sort of serve as base load, but they'll be interacting with these other categories of um, fuel saving resources, which are your renewable energy, 
and then kind of short-term storage and, and quote-unquote fast burn resources that can ramp up and down quite quickly. Um, and just another reminder that, you know, our vision is really not a resource plan. So it would be nice if we could fit them into these, these nice little one-third buckets. But of course, in reality, the mix is going to be a little bit different and will play out in our coming resource plans of exactly you know, how these three different categories are gonna balance each other. But directionally, we really need options in each of these three categories. And again, keep our option, options open in each of the categories as well so that we have all the tools available to us. You know, I think moving forward, there's definitely gonna be innovation in each of these three categories, um, but we certainly see a big gap in the, the need for more investment in the dispatchable carbon-free technology. Next slide, please. So you've heard a lot from us today, and I think um, these are the things that our team is thinking about on a daily basis. And so just wanna summarize here a little bit what you've heard. Um, but first and foremost, we see the big prize that we, along with our stakeholders, are after are carbon reductions and in the co most cost-effective manner. So we're looking for policy options that really focus on that prize and that end result and leave open a number of options in order to get us there. Um, you heard from Nick that we did a lot of work to ground our goal in climate science, and we think that that is a valuable exercise that can also be used to inform public policy and the ways that are the most cost-effective to reach the necessary emissions reductions. You heard from Julia that we're already partnering with a lot of our customers and communities, and there's always more work to, to do there, and we see you know, everyone out there with really strong goals and we hope to be, be your prime partner in that process. And then lastly, um, we certainly are supporting an increased cost-effective renewable build-out and that will be a big part of our 80% goal. But we're looking for more investments in zero carbon 24-7 technologies starting today. And with that, I wanna thank WRI for, for having us to the webinar. I think we've all enjoyed putting this presentation together and we're really looking forward to your questions. So thank you. Thank, thanks, Lauren. Uh, thanks, uh, Jeff, Nick, and, and Julia. Really, really interesting presentation, very thought provoking. Um, and uh, now uh, participants can type in uh, questions on your keyboards uh, and uh, I will uh, be watching my screen for those and, and take a look. As I, as I wait for those to come in, uh, let me just start off by asking um, uh, you all, could you expand a little bit on your, uh, your phrase, steel for fuel, and uh, what, that, uh, what that entails? Carl, it's Jeff. I'll, I'll start off here and I'll um, encourage my colleagues to also join in. So the steel for fuel strategy really at a, in a nutshell, is uh, a strategy that uh, enables us to take advantage of low-cost wind energy. And we, if you think about our service territory, that map that I showed in the very first slide, that very much overlaps with the high wind resources in the U.S. And so that's significant, and it's something that we're taking advantage of for our customers. So the resource is really quite high within our service territory. As you know as well, there's a production tax credit that is a, a declining uh, incentive uh, available that we can uh, bring to, to bear and to avail our customers of. Uh, and so that's an additional cost savings on the already declining cost of wind energy, capture the production tax credit. It, it's all really part and parcel of a strategy that is uh, less expensive for our customers to build new wind, take advantage of that resource, take advantage of the production tax credit, than it might be and often is to run existing natural gas units. And so that is the steel, wind, steel for fuel strategy. It's something that we're implementing in a big way now. As I mentioned at the outset, we have approval for some 12 wind farms 
in seven states, roughly 3,800 megawatts that we are building now. Uh, and that really is a significant part of our ability to reduce carbon dioxide emissions in a cost-effective way. Mm -hmm. Great, thanks. Okay, uh, got a couple questions coming in. Uh, the first one is, are you collaborating with other electric companies to adopt best practices since all of you have aggressive carbon reduction goals? I guess referring to that list of seven or eight other uh, leading companies. This is Julia. I can take a first stab at that. Um, I mean, we do work pretty actively through our involvement in Edison Electric Institute and their various uh, working groups on energy and carbon emissions efforts uh, to really trade ideas there. Some of the work that Nick mentioned in his presentation too through EPRI has provided sort of a forum for us to trade notes with other utilities about the ways that we do some of the analysis um, in terms of alignment with the climate science on this. So I think through a few of these forums, we, we certainly are collaborating and trading best practices. And we've, we've had a number of conversations since we announced our goal with some of those other utilities um, to kind of inform their own strategies. And we hope it, it'll continue to, to, there'll be future opportunities for more of that sharing of learning. Okay. Uh, another question from our participants. If dispatchable zero carbon technologies do not become commercially available in the timeline, would Excel Energy turn to carbon offsets like transportation electrification or forest restoration or similar uh, actions outside the electric sector? Yeah, you know, Carl, I'll, I'll lead off here again and uh, really encourage my, my team to weigh in. Um, it's an interesting question, right? because the last 20% of our plan really is dependent, as Lauren talked about, on uh, several things coming together, right? On new technology becoming available. And as a utility, uh, and I think probably most utilities find themselves in this place, we're not the best poised to implement research and development on new technologies. Uh, we generally have relatively small budgets for those uh, programs and those funds need to be approved by our state regulators. And so it's really about creating an ecosystem, a technology pull, if you will, through this plan and through, I think, other utility plans, as Julia talked about, a signal that those new technologies will be needed. If the technologies don't arrive, however, and if they don't arrive at, a, at an affordable price and maintain grid reliability, we won't be able to get all the way there. Um, we are actively looking at a variety of different technology solutions. Offsets are certainly uh, something that's been out there for some time, but offsets have not been part of our goal, the contemplation of our goal. We really endeavor to make those reductions on our system and from our system. Uh, as Nick talked about though, the last mile of carbon um, may become a sort of societal question of, uh, whether and how much uh, we want to spend uh, to get the last bit of carbon uh, out of the utility sector and out of other sectors. And so what I would say is all things are on the table. We are agnostic with regard to technology, but we don't contemplate an offset strategy for getting to a full zero carbon by mid-century. Okay. Another question, what sort of research are you conducting or supporting to develop affordable dispatchable zero carbon technologies? Do, do you support re research, I guess, perhaps either at the company level or, or through EPRI or other means? Sure, again, I'll lead off. Um, we are active participants and members in the Electric Power Research Institute. And I think that is the primary really vector for us to uh, encourage uh, that research. We are actively working with our national laboratories. Here in Colorado, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, based in Golden, Colorado, uh, that have tremendous resources uh, and uh, R&D capabilities. Uh, we're doing a lot with uh, think tanks as well. Uh, how can we um, affect the dialogue around the need to be technology agnostic? How can we affect the dialogue on the need to really focus 
uh, funds and policy innovation on specifically on those 24-7 technologies. Um, and rather than sort of spreading focus across a wide range, how can we really focus on the types of technologies that Lauren had in her slides? So uh, we're actively engaged in a variety of different fronts, obviously at the, the state level for, in the states that we serve, but also at the federal level too, to try to bring this message to bear to policymakers as they look to allocate resources. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, here's a question that built a little bit on uh, your discussion of what happens uh, as the rest of the, uh, if, if electrification develops uh, in the rest of the economy. Do you envision additional programs or incentives to encourage electrification of more end uses as you de decarbonize electricity production? You know, for example, heat pumps. Right. Well, my team, my, my team is allowing me to go first, and I, and I will do that. The lines, lines are open. What I would say about that, and it's a great question, is again, our goal is our company goal. Uh, we are not assuming that the economy would need to electrify for us to achieve this target. We really think it's important to set the, set the target on ourselves, on our owned and purchased uh, generation units. However, as the, as the person asking the question rightly points out, along the way, there will likely be increased electrification of our economy. And I think from a public policy perspective, since you've got the policy team on the phone here, uh, we think it's really important to think about a strategic or beneficial electrification strategy. Uh, there are a number of states considering beneficial electrification or um, uh, have passed them that is not mandatory in nature, but really thinks about where are the best and most strategic opportunities to reduce carbon today, save customers money, and bring the grid to a higher state of, of efficiency operational efficiency. We are doing a significant amount in the transportation sector, particularly in Minnesota, and I might let Nick uh, speak to that. We also will have to bring plans forward um, in Colorado and New Mexico as the re result of new legislation, and we look forward to doing that uh, on EV charging and tariff uh, rate design. And so, Again, I think the goal, uh, the important thing to point out is that our goal is not uh, based on a certain amount of electrification in the economy. We absolutely do see strategic electrification opportunities. And I would say uh, transportation is uh, one of the big first areas in terms of where we're rolling out programs. So, Nick, do you want to speak to what we're doing in Minnesota? Well, I can add just a little bit to that, Jeff. I think you hit on the key points. I mean, I think in, in starting with transportation, like that's a transportation is the is the largest emitting carbon emitting sector, both nationally and in Minnesota and some of our other states, it's not far behind. And so we're doing a, a lot to think about how we can enable uh, electrification of transportation where that's appropriate. And of course, it's not only driven by carbon reduction, the, the vehicles are becoming, the, the, the range is improving, cost is coming down, we're, we're getting more and more interest uh, in our states in EVs, so we're looking at ways that we can sort of make that decision easier for our customers through uh, basic education, through new rates, time-sensitive rates, time-of-use rates, through helping out with uh, the make-ready infrastructure to bring down the cost of, um, of uh, charging. Um, and we're doing that on a lot of levels, residential, you know, personal vehicle owners to, to um, fleet managers, to public transit fleets. We're trying to do a lot there. And I think that, um, you know, when we have estimated, you know, the, the benefit of that in terms of carbon. You know, if you look at like the typical emissions, yearly emissions of a gasoline passenger vehicle are about five tons, that same vehicle, if it's, it's a, if it's a battery EV plugged into our system, might have only about a ton and a half of emissions, of CO2 emissions per year in our upper Midwest system, two tons in our uh, Colorado system. So there is a benefit there. To be clear, we haven't premised our goal on that. We aren't counting any of that carbon avoidance in other sectors into the goal, into our own 80% reduction or 100% aspiration. Um, but we do see that that's 
important. As I, as I mentioned, you know, the whole economy has to achieve significant reductions if we're gonna have a chance of, of hitting those temperature goals. So we're focusing first on transportation. Uh, there are some other end uses that Jeff talked about where we think electrification could be strategic. And there's some that look, you know, pretty challenging in our cold climate states. Um, large potential loads around uh, residential and commercial heating uh, that aren't that easy to sort of manage to keep them off peak. Those could have pretty significant uh, impacts on our system. So we're looking at, um, you know, what's the most strategic approach to, to serve those end uses. But I think, uh, you know, transportation is a great place to start. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, another question, uh, maybe this goes to, to Julia or any of you. Uh, do you have any lessons learned from your process of developing these carbon reduction goals for other companies that are in the process of defining similar goals? Sure, I'll, uh, I'll jump in and then again, let others add on. I mean, we are, I don't know how broadly the asker of the question is saying companies, you know, I think ours is um, as a utility company and in terms of what's in the scope of our carbon goal, which again is focused on our electricity generation, um, you know, that, that is sort of how we've defined the scope of our project uh, and vision, which would be different from how other companies like some of the Sustainable Growth Coalition members or for instance, cities are defining their goals. So that's why we're really trying to work in partnership with those groups to talk about how our goal can help enable those. Um, and then I, I spoke a little bit, I guess, to how we're, we're working with those other um, associations and groups, EPRI and EEI, to kind of trade notes um, with other utilities, you know, about how you get that sort of internal buy-in, you know, is a, a piece, it, it, utilities are going through a pretty major transition now, and we have a CEO who's um, committed to leadership on this um, and has really helped to make that clear that this is a shared company strategy now, so that's been um, a huge uh, asset for us, and, and again, it's really been under Ben Folks' leadership that we've been able to make this commitment um, and move move the company collectively forward, and then like Jeff mentioned at the beginning, you know, it was a really well-received announcement and that's helped to kind of boost and I think set some example for, for some of those other utilities. Um, a number had already set some level of carbon goal, but we've seen a few come after us now um, to set pretty ambitious goals. So I think it helps for them, for other utilities at least, to see that it's really well-received. Um, there's some real complicated questions yet to figure out in terms of implementation and how we get there, but we are continuing to engage with those folks and partners and peers uh, to, to find the, the answers collectively, hopefully. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing I'd add to that question, uh, Carl and Julia's answer was, was fantastic. The, uh, there's sometimes a, um, I think in public policy, a a sense of, um, you know, a certain state sets a policy stringency and another state uh, equals or, or, or betters it. And I think um, in terms of the question asked here, how should, how could other uh, utilities and our peers uh, learn from our goal? Every system really is significantly different in terms of legacy resources, uh, in terms of resource planning, and in terms of service territory, and availability of, uh, of, of transition opportunities. So I would just um, uh, point out that I think each company uh, should set their own strategic goal <clears throat> and it needn't be exactly uh, our goal, of course. I, I gave one example of the wind resource in our service territory. And there are many, many others. If, as you think about utilities around the country, the assets and the weaknesses in terms of, of uh, new technologies. And so I think it is highly dependent upon the utility. I would say that the grounding and climate science aspect to this, what Nick talked about, was a really important piece for our ability to uh, communicate that we are on a trajectory that's consistent with the latest climate science. Mm -hmm. It's really important. It's something that we continue to get questions about. I have to just point out as well, so that we all get credit for being on this webinar, that we've written a carbon report uh, that articulates all of these points um, in great detail that's available on our website. Um, and I hope the WRI team will link to it uh, following this webinar. Greater detail on the carbon analysis, the climate analysis, greater detail on how we are partnering with customers and communities 
and also on the four drivers and what we see um, what we see happening next. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely make that link on our webinar posting. Thanks. Uh, next question. Uh, there's there's an assumption embedded in this this question that uh, uh, I that I don't know the uh, whether it's valid or not, but the, I'll, I'll put the question to you. Uh, the questioner says, "I applaud your carbon-free aspirations, but was wondering how you plan to prioritize your steel for fuel and technology-neutral policies while lobbying for natural gas generation expansion legislation in Minnesota." Obviously, that last phrase is uh, an assumption about what uh, what you're lobbying for, but I'll I'll throw that out to you. Sure. Um so the legislative session is closed in Minnesota, um, and uh, that has not been part of our strategy. Um, but natural gas generation is part of our strategy. It's part of the um, it's part of the preferred plan that I talked about in the Upper Midwest, the IRP that we uh, preferred plan that we released last Monday, both combined cycle and a placeholder for uh, possible future combustion turbines in the 2030s. What we find and what others find, others by, by others I mean others like uh, the Clean Air Task Force or E3 or other third party groups is that when resource planning models constrain natural gas, that is do not allow natural gas, um, costs to consumers go up really significantly. And what we might be looking at is a future where natural gas is running a relatively modest amount of time to really meet reliability needs. Uh, Nick talked about the wintertime peaking considerations that are coming up in the upper Midwest. We saw that with the polar vortex just this year. So we can imagine that if we're running a system on only intermittent resources, we've got to have some backup generation to meet reliability. It may be that that level of natural gas is uh, um, diminishing over time um, and we are also mindful of opportunities to capture the carbon, Lauren talked about this, uh, from new and existing natural gas resources. But it is absolutely part of the uh, technology, um, the group of technologies that are available today, and we think it's consistent with a deep carbon reduction strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for, uh, for, for attendees who have uh, not been, not aware of some of the developments in uh, natural gas generation with CCS, uh, please uh, Google net power uh, being uh, a technology being demonstrated at the 50 megawatt level right now in Texas that's been described uh, as a potential game changer in terms of delivering uh, zero CO2 power at, uh, at reasonable cost and dispatchable manner. Uh, last, last question as we're at the, uh, at the half hour uh, uh, or the 60 minute mark. Uh, question is, since there are lots of 100% renewable energy goals out there, uh, what do you tell people about why 100% renewable energy isn't possible with today's technologies? And I guess I had sure. just a little coda on that, uh, that you might address uh, what, uh, uh, what battery storage can deliver now as it's being added to some facilities versus what you see it would need, uh, some storage technologies would need to deliver in the future? Well, that is a great question and a, a nuanced answer for uh, that, us. Um, I'll start here from Julia. So as we mentioned at the beginning, you know, we do want to, when customers are setting these goals, we want to be responsive and, um, you know, show the way that our, our transition of our energy mix overall is helping them to get there. And then if they want to make up that incremental difference to meet a goal, for 100% renewables on their system that we have options to help them get there. But for our broader, our system as a whole, there are some challenges and significant cost increases um, and potentially the need to overbuild capacity if we really want to get to, if we, if we wanted to get to a system that was 100% renewable. And so that's why our goal really relies on these additional zero carbon dispatchable technologies to help us get there because we, we're responsible for, again, maintaining the reliability of, the, of our system overall. Um, I expect folks know it. it has been a hotly debated topic, um, but we, and Jeff mentioned this some, you know, we're working with some um, other thought leaders on this, like the Clean Air Task Force, um, 
like Jesse Jenkins, folks who have done some of these analyses looking at the system overall and the, the significant cost increases, again, to, to when you increase renewables beyond 60 or 70 percent and the potential overbuilding of capacity that's needed. So we want to both help customers meet those goals, but explain why this is a carbon-focused vision. And as Lauren um, emphasized again in her sort of key takeaways, we really think that should be the shared public policy goal when we're looking system-wide um, at what we should aim for. Mm -hmm. Great. Any any last any last comments from our Excel Energy colleagues? Just a warm thank you. We we can and often do talk about our carbon reduction strategy all day, Carl. So constrained um, <laughs> ourselves to one hour and um, really appreciate the thoughtful questions and the opportunity. Yeah, uh, you you bet, Jeff. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to thank you guys not only for taking the time with us today, but also uh, for for the leadership that Excel uh, Energy is showing in this area, and uh, uh, certainly hope that. Uh, more utilities uh, and uh, more companies adopt uh, the kind of approach uh, uh, you have and uh, also work towards supportive uh, policy structures that can uh, move the entire economy toward uh, zero emissions by 2050. Uh, so uh, thank you. And then thank you also to all of our participants to some great questions. And uh, we will be posting this uh, on, on the website, probably be searchable on the WI website by uh, the words XL Energy. Uh, so with that, uh, I will say again, thank you and goodbye. Signing off. Thanks. Okay, so we head up.